Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome back to Food for Thought, everyone. Thanks for listening. For more than five decades, we've used and misused the phrase, quote, one size fits all, end quote. I hate that saying. I can't think of anything I own that says one size fits all that I like. I love baseball and golf hats, but I only want the fitted ones. That plastic tab in the back of the cap just bothers me to no end. I detest it. Now, perhaps a wristwatch could be considered one size fits all. And if my co-host decides to buy me a Shinola, then I guess I can suffer through it each time I wear that blackface Canfield 45-millimeter watch that sells for $950 and has a waiting list. Otherwise, one-size-fits-all is just lazy. It takes effort for something to fit, to be correct, to match. We are talking about clothes or Putting together a piece of furniture, one size fits all to me represents the least resistant, easiest pathway that leads to nowhere truly rewarding. Voltaire said, life is a struggle. Hope Solo, the controversial U.S. women's soccer goalkeeper, said, my life is a beautiful struggle. There are no quick one-size-fits-all solutions to life's struggles or the challenges we face in attempting to get society right. To create the culture we envision, one where everyone is lifted up and opportunity is available for all, there is no doubt we are falling short of some of those lofty, ambitious objectives, but I can promise you lazy, one-size-fits-all policymaking will not take us anywhere close to the lofty ideals our forefathers had in mind for America. For example... The minimum wage discussion occurring currently here in Michigan must truly be thought through because a one-size-fits-all policy will have devastating effects on small business community while possibly not having nearly as much devastating effect on larger companies. A one-size-fits-all policy will end up fitting none of us. Data-driven policy decisions take time and must be invested in prior to the wave of platitude thinking that tends to overwhelm the momentum of an ideal once we're confronted with it. Jerry and I will be back with Rob Fowler, the CEO and President of the Small Business Association of Michigan, in order to discuss this ongoing topic here in Michigan, the minimum wage. You come back and be with us. We'll be right here. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back to Food for Thought, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here on the parlor from the Grand Hotel in Mackinac Island with our guest, second-time guest. That's right. Reoccurring guest. Expertise. That's like it. Rob Fowler, CEO and President for the Small Business Association of Michigan. Rob, welcome back to Food for Thought. Thanks, Phil. Happy to be back. Well, it's great. So... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it right at you right off the bat here. The last time you were on the show, first time you were on the show, you made a statement about a minimum wage that if we moved it to $15 an hour abruptly, that it would really impact Michigan families and particularly 
small businesses owned by Michigan families. And every time I introduce you, I always introduce you as a man who stands in the gap for Michigan families. So would you still stand by that statement or have things changed? Um, things have not changed. I think that is, is true. And, you know, I think fundamentally our, our position is and has been that the market does a pretty good job of setting the wage. And I would offer Exhibit A, Michigan Today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth is when the labor market's tight, as it is today, um, t- wages are being driven up by the competition for talent and um, driven up at a, at a pace that the economy can actually absorb it. So very often, in order to pay higher wages, companies have to raise their prices. Mm-hmm. And raising their prices in, at a pace that consumers can actually accept it right. means that you don't you don't go out of business because all of a sudden your customers have gone away on you. It means that the economy is um, is growing, which is that's rising. You know, um, it's the old rising tides raise all boats. That sure. that's how we feel like uh, wages ought to be set. For the government to come in and sort of say, no, you know, it, it ought to be something higher. There is a whole ripple effect to that, and the ripple effect is prices go up. Some businesses can't survive at a at a price that's higher than their customers are willing to pay. Mm-hmm. So b- businesses actually fail. And the more abrupt that change is, the more you see businesses fail. And then people are out of jobs as a result. And our lines get longer. <laughs> yes. Yes. So <laughs> this one is always one of those where it's it's actually for the those people who are proponents of raising the minimum wage, um, it hurts exactly the people they're trying to help with it. So the, the economics of it are never as good as, um, as they hope it will be. Mm-hmm. And they act as if there are no consequences to raising the, mis- the minimum wage. Right. Well, and I think another thing that you said last time you were on the show, and it's good to remind people because who remembers, right? Right. You said, well, if $15 works, why not make it 50 Right. I mean, if the if the dynamics of 15 works, why wouldn't 50 work, you know? And well, I, it's like if, if there's no consequence for that Exactly decision. right. And so I, I do think that it's we have to look at all of the levers. What we're talking about is income sufficiency in households. Right. And we know that wages are a critical lever in income sufficiency. And most people would rather work than anything else in order to support themselves. Right. All right, so what happens when the... A level that a business can reasonably pay for something to be done is less than a living wage. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, really important question. So it, that some people propose raise the minimum wage to take care of that. And we know that that has undesirable consequences as well as it would help some people. Mm-hmm. So let's get, here's the people that need help on the board. Let's look at who they are. Let's look at all the levers we have to help them so that everyone can be self-sustaining to some degree, or at least live in a house where there's enough. Self-sufficient. And decide, now let's overlay policy with that. Let's overlay policy with minimum wage and other things so that we can come up with solutions that have the least undesirable consequences and the most desirable consequences. Does that make sense? Does that sound right? It it does. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, the, the reality of minimum wage jobs is most people don't spend a lot of time in them. They are usually a a part of a journey, an early step in a, in a journey, a career. Uh, and very often, it's the really young people who, who spend time in a minimum wage job, getting experience, making themselves more valuable in the marketplace, mm-hmm. and moving on from there. If we, the, the, the terminology that's always used in this minimum wage discussion is cutting off the bottom rungs. If you cut off the bottom rungs, it's hard to get to the, to the next one. 
And so, so often, minimum wage or low-skilled jobs are the, are the ones that people take in order to get skills and to get experience and to move, move up in the marketplace. To, there's a couple of different ways to raise your wages. One of them is to change jobs, to get more experience, mm-hmm. be more valuable in the marketplace, and, and move up. So we, we sort of come to this place that jobs are not static. In fact, more and more, they are not static. In fact, people spend less and less time in long-term careers and more, more time sort of moving through from job to job. And that's the way a lot of people improve themselves and improve their household income. So you can't, you can't actually go and say all jobs must pay this or pretty soon there will be no jobs at that entry level. And it really hurts people who've got no experience and no skills. So it puts pressure on them. And it puts pressure on them to succeed that may be counterproductive. Right, right. And it accelerates the thing that's actually really hurting, hurting people with no skills, no experience, and that is technology. Yep. So we will replace a lot of those low-skilled jobs with technology when the price of labor gets to be too high. And especially if it's artificially high. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think that's the, that's the fight here. Lots of well-meaning people get behind this notion of, you know, we, we need an across-the-board minimum wage. Um, and it has real consequences. One of the things that we, you know, truth is $12 in Detroit is different than $12 in the UP or in Ironwood. And um, we, have, we have members in the UP who say, listen, the labor market's different here. Mm-hmm. The cost structure is different. It costs less to live there. So one size fits all. Um, public policy, we've seen this enough to know that, that it really doesn't work and it will have consequences in places that people just aren't thinking about yet. Well, I think that's one of the points that makes the self-sufficiency standard that we've commissioned and now is published so important because we do know what it takes for 719 different household types across all 83 counties of Michigan and what it means for them to be self-sufficient. So they don't need us and they don't need the government. They're able to support themselves. And so we know what that number is. And I think to Jerry's point about taking the, uh, the, 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 the section of people who are affected by this and then now let's lay over the policies and all of the levers that we can bring both from the government and from the private sector as well as the charitable sector to see how can we get them and help them reach self-sufficiency because we know what that number is. Right. We've never known it before. Now we do. And, and knowing what we're shooting for. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the work that United Way has done around Alice describing right? this asset limited um, what's the what's income the, constrained. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's a that's a reality, and and how do you help Alice in this uh, in this discussion? I think uh, a good economy is a, helping Alice in a pretty big way. Sure, there's no question about it. I I think in my work, what I find is that the the most difficult questions come with um, when you have capacity issues for many many different reasons, and you have people who are certainly capable of doing something. But they might not be capable of what the average person can do. You're, you're always going to need some kind of a safety net that's purely driven by helping people who right. need help because they just don't have what it takes. But I will tell you that even though that's true and we know the safety net has to be there, um, there's a lot of people, the vast majority of people that with a little bit of investment want to do everything else for themselves. Right. I say it this way. Few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to be fixed today. Right? They know what they want, and they know what they want to do to get there, and they're willing to do things to get there. They're not looking to be fixed. So 
I agree with you that, that the, the way that the economy works to, to help drive wages is a critical thing to understand, recognizing that what people want is to be successful more than they want to be helped. Well said. Well said. Agreed. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. If you can hang with us for a few more minutes, we want a couple more really easy questions we want to ask you. <laughs> He's Rob Fowler. He's the CEO and president for the Small Business Association of Michigan. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food for Thought on WJR. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find us at foodsecuremichigan.org. Catch up on all of our Food for Thought shows. Jerry Brisson, our co-host, CEO and president at Gleaners Community Food Bank and the chair of the Food Bank Council of Michigan Board of Directors with our guest, Rob Fowler, who's the CEO and president for the Small Business Association of Michigan. And Rob, uh, you and I were talking yesterday, and you just barely mentioned the UP and that economy there and how distinctive it is. But there's a story you have about this issue of minimum wage and and particularly Ironwood. Can you share that with us? Yeah, so I don't know how many people have been to Ironwood, Michigan. It is far west as you can get in, in the Upper Peninsula. It is um, a town literally on the state board. In fact, it's a town with a state line that runs down the middle of it. Huh. And on the west side, it's Hurley, Wisconsin. And on the east side, it's Ironwood, Michigan. But it's one economy and one, one town. All right. Um, in that town is a company that's, whose uh, president is on our board of directors called Stormy Cromer. I don't know if we know that people know that name, but that's the classic yep. Upper Peninsula hat. It's the flap ears down flap hat. Um, it's been around since 1905. It's a classic Upper Peninsula issue. And um, so that company sits in Ironwood, Michigan, and the CEO said to me, you know, $12 an hour in Ironwood, Michigan is a pretty high wage, and if this bill or this uh, ballot initiative that's on likely to be on the ballot this fall were to pass, she is likely to have to just move her company into Hurley. Furthermore, every restaurant that has waiters and waitresses in Ironwood, Michigan, is likely to have to move over to the other side or completely change their model. So I don't know if people understand this. The tipped wage, mm -hmm. the deal in restaurants today is if you're if you're a waiter or waitress, you get paid, I think it's about $4 an hour by the company, but you keep all your tips. And right. most people do way better than minimum wage with tips. Right. Uh, but this bill would say that the tip wage has to go to $12. So now what you have to charge for food would dramatically increase, which means now customers, are they going to keep coming at this higher price? Right. Um, and the only way to get around that is either to say no tipping or to change the business model from you know, waiters and waitresses coming out to your table to, you know, an iPad at your table and you, you order it and then somebody delivers it to you who you don't tip. I think people don't fully get that those are the implications of a $12 tip wage. Right. But in particular in Ironwood, if you wanted to still have family service waiters and waitresses, you would have to do that from Hurley, Wisconsin. You'd never be able to compete with the restaurants in Hurley if you were a Michigan company trying to use the same model. Yeah. So it, it has those kinds of, and, you know, and that's it's dramatic because there's a, it's a city with a state line in the middle of it, but think of Monroe or Hillsdale or you know other right. other New Buffalo places that sit on state borders, where just across the across the line is a different labor market. Right, and at least they would have the option to go across the border. But those of us who own a small business in mid-state, 
we don't really have that option. Right, right. Well, that's right. I mean, it's 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 at least if you're at the border, you have the option of crossing the border. Right. If you're not at the border, you don't have that option. And the truth is, if people would pay more, people would charge more. Right. right? It's it's right. not like the, the that industry in particular is rolling in it so deep that uh, you know they're wondering what to do with the next dollar. Right. It's a pretty right. tight margin industry, and so those things really do have a massive impact on those types of businesses. Yep. And there's a lot of people working in there. Absolutely, and you know, it's it's also restaurants in particular are, and and I would say low skill manufacturing, this this sort of where people tend to make minimum wage, is also a place they struggle to provide benefits, mm-hmm. and I think some employees would far rather have health care sure. and ten dollars an hour than twelve and nothing, and and those are the trade offs that the, this public policy is going to begin to drive when the. When the minimum wage goes higher than the market wage. Well, we saw this, and you alluded to earlier, made the statement, when other policy is dictated like this, it has um, consequences, unintended consequences, yes. for the very people it's trying to help. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen that with the Affordable Care Act and the way that businesses had to adjust. If you made more, worked more than 28 hours, then all these benefits were required. And so what did employers do? They started 27-hour week. Yeah. That's right. You know, because of the enormous cost it is to provide health care. Right. But so. I think that's a consequence, too, of pushing legislation when you can. So, again, it's and we understand the politics of when you have, you know, all of the votes you need, you want to push things through that you believe in. Mm-hmm. But when you do that and you don't really bring the whole conversation to the table to, to say, let's really think this through, Um, What happens is these unintended consequences, and I think that's one of the things that we have to be really, really careful about is not letting the political cycle dictate the pace of legislation. And and I always say, you know, if is it an unintended consequence if you've been warned that that's what's going to happen if you pass the law? So uh, we started the show last year. You were one of our first guests. Uh, This we're in our second year now on Food for Thought here on WJR, so we'd kind of like to probably have you back more often because you do have your pulse on, uh, on what's good, what's best for uh, Michigan families, and that's who Jerry and I and our network yep. is serving. And uh, So we'd like to have you invite you back uh, and make that trip to the Fisher Building with us. Well, I appreciate it, and I've appreciated uh, this, this conversation. I mean, the truth is... Um, a lot of people might think that you would be you would be exactly the voice would say, oh my goodness, yes, we should raise the minimum wage as high as we possibly can. But the, the, a, a rational conversation leads us to to being a little more cautious about this. And I appreciate the fact that, that given who you serve, the poor, mm-hmm. uh, that we're cautious about this issue. And I don't think, I think some people are going to listen to that and think that this, this, um, this may be not compute. And I appreciate the fact that you've been this thoughtful about what household income is necessary to be sufficient and how what it takes in the economy to to earn that and what could upset the apple cart so i think you have been uh, extraordinarily thoughtful about this whole thing and so we're better than food for thought yeah well thank you we appreciate it we do we do want to be thoughtful about uh particularly all the policy that affects the families that we serve but um you know i mean in order to have jobs you got to have employers <laughs> and, and that's where you and your team come in. Well, I would say states can make their employers do a lot of things, but they can't make them stay, and they can't make them invest. Mm, that's well said. He's Rob Fowler. He's the CEO for the Small Business Association of Michigan. Rob, thanks for being our guest again on Food for Thought, and we're going to continue this conversation as we move through the year. 
Looking forward to it. All right, Jerry Passan, we'll be back in just a moment to wrap up this edition of Food for Thought. Thanks for listening, everybody. Come back and be with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry and I are back here in the uh, Golden Tower of the Fisher Building, WJR studio and we're going to wrap up our interview there with rob fowler about minimum wage and you know jerry there's been a host of conversations from our time on mackinaw that directly impact policies that directly impact the people that we serve and quite frankly make it either easier on us to create food security or harder Right. And I think, um, you know, I get a lot of questions right when I get back from Mackinac from people saying, well, what actually did you do or what was accomplished or was it worth going? And uh, and of course, if you listen to the interviews uh, on our show, you know the value of those and the value of having time with those very significant people like Dan Kildian, Debbie Stabenow and, and Rob Fowler and others. But there's also an awful lot of value to being present in many, many conversations that are going on among leaders to remind people what happens when you don't put food first. And so when we think about these issues that are talked about, whether it's issues in education, issues in workforce developments, even issues to some degree in transportation. Um, Hot topic at Mackinac. Hugely important topic. And people debating, you know, whether or not there should be a regional transit and what the impact of that would be. Fundamentally, anything that helps people be self-sufficient is going to be good for all aspects of our community. Now, debating what's the right way to be um managing the transit issue is you know certainly what was going on up there but from our perspective we've got to address mobility for people if we're going to have a food secure community some way or another we have to have something that works yeah so somebody might wonder why we're talking about that on our show food for thought and our mission to create food security but uh the ability to transport yourself to a job uh, is you know if a job is the best friend you have in in creating food security, uh, if a job is the best social program that there is, you got to be able to get there backward and you know and back. And so that's why a public transport system, particularly here in Southeast Michigan, is vitally important. Yeah, a dependable one that you can count on, that uh, that you're happy to take, that feels safe and clean. I mean, all those kinds of things. Now, of course, people feel like we already have that, or some people feel like we already have that, and we certainly have some great things in, in our bus systems, and so we're not trying to disparage any of the existing work. But we had over 200 employers say publicly, we need to address this. If employers are saying it, I think we should listen. Well, you know, we, we base some of the employee resource network um, conversations and work that we're beginning to develop in partnerships on a model out of Grand Rapids where the gentleman in his company was was uh, forced with a huge amount of turnover, over 30% of his employees. And so as he kind of peeled the layer off that onion, he discovered, you know, the primary two reasons people were getting fired. It was because, you know, they were missing work and childcare. And he said, well, I can't really do much about child care, but by God, I can do something about transportation. And so he hired a mechanic to work full time on his salary, and he worked on his employees' vehicles while they were at work. 
And all they paid for were the parts. He paid the person to do the labor. So that's one ingenious way. And as you said, if over more than 200 employers in this area are saying, we need to address the transit system, then we need to address the transit system. And when somebody can get to a job and get home again um, and keep that job and grow in that job and that, that income grow, then it makes our job of creating food security for that person and in that community much and easier. And then you attach that to the talent development and some of the other things are being that are being talked about. Because fundamentally, okay, if you have a job but it doesn't pay a living wage, what do you do about that now? Now you maybe have a way to get there. Now what are the other pieces of the puzzle that need to be managed so that we end up at a place where people are self-sufficient? And of course, self-sufficiency is the only real way to end food insecurity. So sure. complex issues for sure, and that's why we're at Mackinac, because right. we need to listen to what people are saying and let those debates inform our work as then we try to inform their work so that we're working in tandem with each other to come up with strong policies that don't have really bad unintended consequences. Yeah, and make our job, that our mission, much more, much harder. So, the, you know, the other side of that, Jerry, is you said, and we're listening to these debates and the issues that, are, that our communities are facing. And you're exactly right, and we should listen. I mean, God gave us two ears and one mouth. We ought to listen twice as much as we talk. Hmm, I hope no one from my family heard that. <laughs> so... So, um, but we are, we're not, we are listening, but we're not just listening. I mean, I don't want people to think that we're just, you know, chameleons that are blending in here. We have a voice too. And that voice, uh, this particular uh, trip to Mackinac was to share the perspective that regardless of what you're doing in order to help your employees or your students or your patients, Food first is a concept that you need to employ in all of those areas. And then to lay out why. Because, you know, it's not everybody's job to think about this, though everyone has a role in solving it, right? It's our job to be thinking about it and to present it in really simple ways to people who will go, ah, I never thought about it that way before. So how does life change for students in education if those students, just by the fact of going to a school, are guaranteed household food security? How would that change that whole educational experience? How would it change the experience of a uh, person who's a who maybe has a health condition that takes home a prescription that says take with food and they don't have any food at home? How would hmm. it change their life if food security was a guaranteed part of their experience in health care? Those are the kinds of things that we bring to the table and say we need to be thinking about this because we can find ways to get food to people. That's what food banks all over this state are good at. Yes. So if we know how to get food to people, we know how to source that food, and all we need to do is connect those resources to people who are affected when food is not part of the solution, we're very far along in the answer already. Yeah, you know, and I think that that would be... uh uh, look, thinking back to some of the guests we've had on the show that seemingly have polar opposite perspectives. So Rob Fowler and this show earlier in segments talking about the danger of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour and the impact that would have on a lot of small businesses and therefore small business families. But then you remember the show we had with Cindy Estrada, who Cindy, being the, the vice president for UAW General Motors, sharing with us that like a half a percent of people in the entire world hold like 99% of the world's wealth. 
You know, I, I can't remember that statistics, but she said it several times during our show. And seemingly they would have our polar opposite perspectives. But yet when you get them in the room, in fact, I know they both serve on a, a board of directors for a non statewide nonprofit that their 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 policies may seem so vastly different, but they both want to accomplish the same thing. Right, which is to have a community we all want to live in. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, that th- th- both of them are have a huge amount of integrity and are doing their best to make sure that the community is well cared for. And, uh, you know, and that's, of course, the pleasure of what we do, really, in, in many ways, is we get to meet people who are truly inspiring. Yeah, well, and and different. And different. That's, <laughs> well, and there comes the listening again. I mean, you know... Um, the art of compromise isn't just about giving in on something that's important to you. It's about really hearing what the issues are and understanding that your point of view may not be rich enough or deep enough or sufficient to really solve the problem. So you have to hear other points of view that deepen you, enrich you, and give you better tools to solve complex problems. Right. Well, Jerry, let's continue this conversation into one more segment here on the show. But one of the topics I want us to cover is an event that we attended, which was the um, the Michigan Gubernatorial De- Forum. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to call it a debate. Uh, the forum where we had uh, three candidates from the Democratic side and three candidates from the Republican side all on the stage at the same time. And you, I, you and I attended that event, and we have a special perspective on that. That won't surprise any of our regular listeners <laughs> um, as we've approached the campaigns with uh, a policy paper, and we want to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Food for Thought. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. He's Jerry Brisson. We're wrapping up the Mackinac Policy Conference. You come back and be with us in just a few moments. Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome back, everybody. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio, wrapping up the Mackinac Policy Conference. Uh, Jerry, um, you and I attended the gubernatorial forum. Yep. Um, that acted like a debate <laughs> at, times, at, at times at times i um, mean uh and we've talked about this several times but you know i i like to characterize it as a hear what the candidates want to say moment because yeah. that's a lot of times for all of the debates uh it, throughout election seasons it's really come down to that because candidates have been trained not to get trapped they've been trained not to uh, step outside safe ground because uh you know if you do you're gonna get trounced and so uh so it, it you know People are very well trained to say what they want to say and not necessarily answer the questions. Though I will say there's a few things that happen in every one of these that makes you smile. Yeah. So I think there was a few statements made during the uh, debate, and uh, we're going to hear a few of those statements now. You're going to see more construction this year than maybe you've seen over the course of your entire life. We have an attorney general who goes to court and says there's no constitutional right to literacy. I believe every child in the state has a birthright to a phenomenal public school education and a path to a high-wage job. But I also think she should start school at three, not five, because she's the best learner she'll ever be at her youngest age. And it also means too many families are taking on too much debt to go to college. Every student 
that comes from a family earning less than $150,000 a year should graduate debt-free. We, we need to provide the necessary funding we need so our schools will be safe. We have the enough support staff for our teachers to be able to teach and our students to be learned in a safe environment. Absolutely no guns in schools, no guns with teachers. No, I think uh, Dr. Abdul said is going off and playing a uh, religion card and he's playing a race card. You know, America's been uh, de described as a shining city on a hill, but if you can't read the directions to get there, if you can't spell opportunity, you're, you're lost. So one of the statements that particularly I found of interest was from Attorney General Bill Schuette, who said that he would put a, um, a literacy director, and I think he used the term smack dab, in his office as governor that would directly report to him. So when I heard that, Jerry, I thought, okay, here is an opportunity to influence policy in regard to food first and literacy, third grade reading levels by third grade. Because you can't be well read if you're not well fed. And therein lies the tale. And when we talk to teachers and schools, administrators and superintendents and the Michigan Department of Education and all the other people that we talk to about food first and education... There isn't one person that disagrees with that. Not no. one. Everybody knows you have got to have food security for the child and the household right. in order for kids to reach third grade reading level by third grade. Now, it's not all that's needed, but it is the first thing we have to do if we want to really tackle this problem. Well, I agree. It's not, it's not the it's complete solution, but it doesn't really matter what you're doing after that if you're not doing that. Right. That's why we call it food, food first. first. Right. So uh, we've also had on the show um, what would be the leading uh, Democrat, uh, Democratic candidate, and that's Gretchen Whitmer, who has been on our show and has talked about this in depth, this issue of food insecurity across Michigan, in depth here on Food for Thought. And here's a couple of her thoughts. Well, I think, you know, you look at some of the reaction to government failure at its worst in Flint, Michigan, but some of the things that have come from that in terms of how making the farmer's market available and open, ensuring that there are food trucks with produce, fresh produce, knowing that that's what remediates the best um, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to remediate some of the lead damage that was done to the children of Flint. And so I think that those partnerships are absolutely critical and the state plays uh, an important role in, in convening, you know, the, the all of the stakeholders but also strategizing about how do we connect farmers who are doing amazing work across the state with the population who really needs the the access to fresh food. You know, that's that's just two of them. That was, but there were other candidates: uh, Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, uh, Senator Patrick Colbeck. Uh, Abdul El Sayed, who used to be the health uh, department director in Detroit. Hey, you got a chance to talk to him afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure you got to talk to him about food first, but I'd really be interested to know his take on that. You know, he knows gleaners, of course. We've worked with him several times in his tenure in the health department. And as a physician and also someone who's deeply interested in how to make the community healthy, uh, he's been a supporter and someone we've worked closely with. So I don't have any doubt about his commitment to the issue of food first. Yeah, I, I would wouldn't think so. Right. And then Sri Tanadar, who we didn't get a chance to talk to, so uh, we can't say too much. And then uh, Senator uh, uh, Colbeck. Senator Patrick Colbeck. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk with him, but we'll reach out to him as well and try to get them on the show as we're moving through the summer toward the uh, primary elections uh, happening in August. Yeah, it's coming up fast. I mean, uh, even though I'm sure when you see the commercials over and over, it doesn't feel fast, <laughs> but yeah. it'll get here before we know it. Yeah, it's crazy um, how 
fast it will get here. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I feel like summer just got here, so I don't want to rush. I don't want to speed through it too fast. <laughs> That's true. That's um, true. So uh, let me give you the last word here on the Mackinac Policy Conference. And I know you, you alluded to it a minute ago and just said it's worth the trip. In one sentence, why? Well, there's a lot of people in one place that if you had to drive and meet with them, it would take you way more hours than what it takes to be up there. And that's one reason why. But it's about being present to leadership on important issues where this needs to be discussed. Yeah, I think that the state of Michigan shrinks to the size of the Grand Hotel porch three days a year. Yep. And I want to be there. Because I think a large part of our work and why we do this show is to influence the influencer. Absolutely right. So time for a little food for thought. Jake Sullivan said, public policy is a study in imperfection. I, I agree. <laughs> public policy is a study in imperfection. It involves imperfect people with imperfect information facing deeply imperfect choices. So it's not surprising that we're getting imperfect results. But you know what's not imperfect is our heart, our motive, our motivation, and what drives Jerry and I and the other food bank directors and CEOs across this state to stand in the gap for the poor and make sure that children, seniors, and working families all have the food that they need in order to become self-sufficient. We're committed to that mission and we're committing to influencing the influencers on their behalf. Thanks for listening. Catch all of our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org. And until next week, remember food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state.